1: Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Judge William Webster, a gentleman with a very distinguished career in Washington, having been the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation as well as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency uh, at a time when I was very pleased to, uh, to work with him. And since then, he has continued to be involved in public affairs, and he is currently a member of the Department of Homeland Security Advisory Council. And he has had to deal with some of the very vexing issues which face uh, that new Department of Government as it seeks to reinforce uh, both our domestic security and uh, take other measures uh, in the face of disasters such as Katrina. Um, Let me ask you, Judge Webster, given your background, if you had an opportunity, and certainly it's possible that you might, uh, had an opportunity to brief, let's say, the new occupant of the White House, uh, possibly his National Security Advisor, are there any things that come readily to your mind that you feel are important that that the President take into consideration or address as he begins his tenure as President? Well, there are probably so many of those that I uh, would forget to name the most important
0: ones. but. Uh, One would hope that as uh, uh, there will be a change of administration, there will be a new president, regardless of which party prevails, uh, that that person understands the correct role, both of national security as such and of intelligence gathering to support the policy decisions that are made elsewhere but for which the president will be responsible. I think that it's uh, Uh, It's important that he understand that the intelligence community and there are several agencies and especially the CIA uh, whose responsibility is to gather useful and timely information to be helpful in making the best policy decisions and that they bring no policy motivations to the table. And if, there, if he has any doubt about that or she has any doubt about whoever the president may be, uh, that that ought to be addressed because I, I believe that that's, otherwise uh, there will always be the latent suspicion that the uh, head of that agency is trying to promote a policy by giving only the information that supports the policy. Likewise, I think it's going to be the responsibility of the person has responsibility of telling the president what is happening in his world to be sure that the intelligence that he gives is not dissected or cherry-picked to supply information to support a policy that has already been made or
1: a view of the world that has already been formed. Do you, as you look at the intelligence community today, which is now some 16 agencies, uh, including the, the newly formed uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, do you have the sense that it's working out along the lines that, that, that the, the, the members of the 9-11 Commission uh, had intended when they asked for the formation of, of uh, when they asked for reform within the community, and the creation of the uh, Director of National Intelligence, a, a brand new office. Peter, I'm not at all sure that
0: that this meets the expectations of the 9-11 Commission or the people who support it, uh, or perhaps even of the c- Congressman who voted for the legislation that followed it. Uh, that's not a criticism of the leadership I think that the appointments uh, to head the Department of National, to be Director of National Intelligence have been excellent. I think the appointments to head the CIA uh, have been excellent. Uh, That's really not the issue. The issue, I think, stems from the fact that there was enormous pressure brought to bear following the issuance of the Commission report to enact appropriate legislation before we had another terrible and tragic uh, terrorist event. And that, that pressure or panic prevented, in my view, the Congress from coming to the kind of legislation that the Commission itself advocated. I'll be very specific about the three things that I thought were most important if we were going to shift from having a Director of Central Intelligence, which I thought could work with the proper legislative authority, to a new Director of National Intelligence. First of these being budgetary control of the intelligence community. Uh, You look through 200 pages of that bill and you find very little about his actual authority. When I was Director of Central Intelligence, I knew that I lacked the, the authority that I needed, but I tried to make up for it by acting as a kind of den chief who tried to build consensus among the and consent among the intelligence community members. I don't think we made much progress beyond that situation in the legislation. The two other things that I felt we should have provided for were some role for the director of national intelligence in the selection of the heads of the various, the 14, 15 members of the intelligence community, which the DCI never had, and which I hoped that the new new newly created office would have. Uh, And finally, in an outgrowth of that, uh, I felt it was important that the the Director of National Intelligence have peer review responsibilities which he does not. Uh, The uh, heads of the the various heads of the different components of the intelligence community, uh, largely military, uh, still report to someone else and they are always respectful and polite to the Director of National Intelligence but I suspect that uh, they salute another place, which makes it difficult to achieve the ends, I think, of the 9-11 Commission. Those three things are missing. And finally, the thing that concerns me the most, I suppose, in terms of management, is that instead of developing a kind of joint intelligence committee, such as the British have used successfully over the years, of a small group, say, 30 to 50 at the most, but say 30, uh, that extra layer has evolved into something uh, exceeding, I believe, 2,000 people now, certainly it was past 1,500 and I think it's probably over 2,000 now. It's hard for me to imagine what those people could be doing to advance the interests of the President and uh, those responsible for national security in terms of an overlay on people who already have the assignments. And I fear, I'm giving it all to you now, but I fear that unless it's carefully brought under control, there are going to be people out there who are doing precisely what the Director of National Intelligence has said he does not want to do, and that is to get into the operations of the different organizations. And I continue to hear reports that there are there are tasking going on at that level of an operational nature, which would be confusing to anyone trying to know who he reports to and who he takes orders from. So I'm hopeful that that in a, that in due course the new president will direct the right people to take a look at the way the structure has is is evolving and whether or not it needs correction and redirection as i think it does and i say that without criticism of the leadership because i think the leadership is excellent the <laughs> leadership has to deal with the with the authority it's been they've been given sure. and at the levels that they've been given and try to uh, have a system that is efficient
1: not confusing and responsive well i think you put it very well and i think that was uh, certainly a, a major concern of the professionals was that uh, they understood why there might be a new office uh, to oversee the community, but the concern being that it not be simply another layer of bureaucracy and perhaps end up doing some of the very things that, that you've just mentioned. Exactly. I wonder if, if I could just turn to something. I, I think the organization of the community and the points that you've made are very valid, I'd like to just turn to sort of something that we hear a lot about Main Street today and we sure. hear a lot about yes, we sure do. What, what concerns the people. And I think one of the things that has been a, a, a subject of concern and people who, who think about intelligence or they think about the kinds of conflicts that we're having to deal with now, insurgency and so forth, and they think about the issue and I'll call it civil liberties, the, the civil liberties and national security. That's always been a a balancing act. It's as old as the Republic, but we're now in a new phase of the Republic, in a sense. And you have uh, not just been head of these two agencies, both of which deal with those issues in some of their work, uh, both the FBI and the CIA, but now you're on the Advisory Council of, of the Department of Homeland Security. And I think that's one of the issues you've had to grapple with in that position, and I just wonder if there's some comments you could share with us today on that issue.
0: Well, as you point out, it's as old as the Republic. In fact, uh, the issue is older than the Republic by my calculations. I think it was first articulated by Sir Edmund Burke almost 300 years ago in Bristol, England, when he said the kind of liberty he meant is one accompanied by order, and one that not only could exist it could not exist without it but it was liberty protects order order protects liberty and uh, the balancing that's necessary there can sometimes be very complicated. The Amer- the public in general and the American people in general are not always of the same mind and on all occasions though it's a, it's a different type of circumstance. We had a deputy director of central intelligence named Vernon Walters. General Walters was one of Eisenhower's trusted advisors, ambassador to the United Nations and to Bonn. And he would thought a lot about these issues and he wrote that the American people are ambivalent about intelligence. When they feel threatened, they want a lot of it. And when they don't feel threatened, they think it may be just a little bit immoral. Well, I thought about that a lot because it it, te- it tends to affect the attitude of people on specific issues at specific times and decisions can be made that are later regretted because they are extreme in an effort under pressure to obtain the information that people feel are vital to prevent some other incident from taking place. And we went through that period now, but it Uh, It's come into play in terms of executive orders and other authorizations that have to do with how far you can go when you have a person you believe has information that's vital to our national security in getting that information. Logically you'd like to think that by talking to them and interviewing them and so forth that you could get the information and of course it doesn't always work that way and the next step is how, how much physical or psychological pressure can you bring to bear in order to get the information. And the counterpoint of that issue is that we find that those of us who have worked with, with the business of getting information, that is the reliability goes down the more extreme the measures, the more pain you inflict on someone the more likely you are to tell you whatever you want to hear, or they think you want to hear, just so you will stop the pain. And we call that the issue of detention and interrogation, when you have taken someone in custody. And there are a lot of constitutional issues that we can't have time to discuss here fully that go to the question of under what circumstances can you take a person in custody? You know if you're in a war, and they're in uniform, they become a prisoner of war, and they become subject to articles of war sure. that are understood and clearly understood. When, as we had in 9-11, we've got a new type of category of a person who is not yes. uh, loyal to a particular flag, serves no particular state, uh, not in uniform, uh, and uh, is serving their own particular purpose. What? What kinds of responsibilities do you have to these illegal combatants, as they are sometimes called? And we're still freshing that one out, it seems to me. But we know that insofar as possible, that we ought to follow the Geneva Conventions with deal with the humanitarian treatment of people taken into custody. I'm not talking about how long they can be kept, but how they should be treated while you have them in your custody and control. And then the, the, there are some who feel that uh, this, these extreme measures maybe should be entrusted to an agency such as the CIA. Uh, that's not altogether welcome, because people who do this work and who s- serve in the CIA do not want the reputation for engaging in, in activity that is an extreme uh, pain-provoking, I'm using as an example of that sort of thing, sleep deprivation and so forth, been known to police officer for years. But the extreme measures, uh, the CIA is, is not a Gestapo, does not want the reputation for doing that. And besides, as I said before, how reliable is the information obtained under those circumstances? So we're still searching for reliable less intrusive means of getting information. Everyone wants to get there before the next bomb goes off and that's vitally important. The FBI has been changing dramatically its efforts to uh, participate in intelligence gathering uh, rather than simply investigating a crime that's already occurred. I think it's not correct to say that this is something new because I I recall when I was director of the FBI, I first went to it. In 1978, we were experiencing hundred terrorist incidents a year. They were lethal. They were not like the Trade Center or the bombing of the Pentagon, but they were lethal and they needed to be addressed. And the only way to address, just to reduce those numbers, was to get there first. And the only way to get there first is to have the intelligence. So they have been working on that issue although less effectively than they would like, particularly with respect to converting uh, their data gathering, their data mining capabilities to know what do we know about something when we get a clue that something's happening. Uh, They were so constricted in the days when the balance wheel had shifted away from getting the information more to protecting civil liberties and to uh, uh, searching reports called the Church Committee and the Pike Committee reports in the early 1970s pretty much dictated that the FBI should work differently, separately, in a different location and in a different way than the CIA. And the CIA should be overseas and not in the United States. And that limited the level of cooperation. So getting to be more effective depends again upon uh, how uh, how. Necessary is the information and how reliable is the information that is going to be obtained and and how true to our values are the methods that we use. And that is a part that I think we have to keep reminding ourselves, that we do not want to let these uh, uh, terrorists turn us
1: into them. Okay. I think it's a... A valid point it's a it's a dialogue that is still going on yes uh, one that you are participating in you know it occurs to me as I as we're speaking here that uh, having heard you uh, testify on the hill, you've had the distinction and pleasure or dubious pleasure of appearing a number of times uh, in, in front of the uh, Hill leadership but particularly of the oversight committees did it uh, I'm sure it's it's something you've given thought to. But would you see a virtue in, in there being a joint oversight committee uh, overseeing, say, CIA and, and uh, perhaps even in the FBI? Well,
0: um, yes, I do. I, I, I mean, I just as a matter of, of efficiency, we've, we've been going recently been going through some tough economic times and we've seen the two, body, the two houses of the Congress not functioning well together and I think that the kind of information that, that is shared could be shared under more controlled situations. They would uh, they would not be going off in different directions. We've had joint committees before. We've had a joint economic committee. We've had others. So I see it. I don't say it's ne- absolutely necessary, but I see a real advantage to working in that way. Uh, I don't know whether the American people realize that we have currently two special committees one in the house one in the senate in which they are select committees carefully selected and each uh, hold their hearings in uh, in very secure quarters very tightly held information and in a, and they are entitled to know anything that roughly anything that's in the possession of the intelligence community that's uh, that makes them surrogates for the rest of the Congress and the American people because they cannot go out and begin to throw out information that might endanger other people's lives or give away the progress that we made in getting to the source of some serious terrorist threat.
1: Well, we are are so subject to sort of blogging and rumors and sort of underground conspiratorial type thinking um, let me just ask you, as, a, as, a, as an American citizen, because Congress does stand as surrogates for us, and, and the committee in turn stands as surrogates for the rest of Congress, are you satisfied that the, that the oversight process in the main, we know there'll be flaws here, but in the main works?
0: I would have to say that I, that I believe it is. This would not, not to say it can't be improved, but I believe it, it can work. One of the ingredients that we haven't talked about, that I think is absolutely essential, are two, two issues, which I call truth and trust. And I say they are the oil and the grease that makes, the glue rather, that makes uh, it possible to share information, have that information protected, and have the oversight done in a proper way. If trust is lacking, if the surrogates do not believe they are being told the truth uh, in the testimony that's provided and the information that's given, they'll act in a different way, and that way will not necessarily be good for the country. So it's important that that the manner in which testimony is given it makes clear that that the that the uh, the witnesses or the people who were sent to represent the, the community and the executive branch are saying giving answers which are truthful uh, that they are that they are complete. I used to use what I call the four C's that all testimony must be correct, candid, complete, and consistent. And when we started that process, the, the accusations that we were being disingenuous and lying and withholding information really went away. But it's truth builds trust, and without trust, we're all in deep trouble.
1: Well, I remember those, uh, even these many years later, I remember that you felt so strongly about that we'd be absolutely upfront and level with the Congress, and that was the way to... Uh, ensure that that the process worked, and, and, and I remember that after well, the years I'm glad uh, you do. I, I really
0: felt I was right, but I also felt there would be times when uh, people would look around in one of those so-called secure rooms and see 20 or more gargoyles of people who were not clearly part of the official party, been brought in or allowed to be present, and the sensitive questions that were being asked and they felt uncomfortable in trying to answer them that the solution was simply to say they weren't authorized to answer the question in that setting, that they would go back and uh, and the agency would work with congressional staff to serve their purpose and also protect our duty to preserve and protect sources and methods. And uh, so I'd I'd encourage them not not to be cute to avoid an answer. If they shouldn't answer, tell them not. They'd, they'd answer later when we
1: both, when the setting was proper. Okay. Judge Webster, it's been a pleasure to have you here today, and I, I, I hope your thinking and some of your concerns make their way to that first occupant of the White House uh, when, he, when he goes into the, uh, into the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. And thank you again for being with us. It's a pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's spycast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum dot org.